The Expendables, How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization. Now, that's a title that should uh, bring you in and make you want to read this book. You should, actually, and I'm going to say that. Uh, Jeff Rubin's latest book is, if you're going to read one book this year, it should be this one. Uh, he's been kind of on a, write, a book writing binge here. Why the world is about to get a whole lot smaller, the end of growth, the carbon bubble, and now looking at what has happened to the middle class in the uh, world of globalization. So, Jeff, it's great to see you. Thanks for it's being here. Great to see here. you again. It's been some time. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time. So I want to just dive into, uh, the book has got so much stuff in it, I barely know where to start, but some of the statistics that, that you use and present in in the book are staggering. All of the new jobs that are really being created are in the service sector. Two in 10 jobs are people still employed in actually making things. But in Canada, not a single net job has been created in the goods sector in nearly 20 years. What is going on? Well, you know, that's a, that's an interesting observation. Uh, it often gets buried beneath the headline of how many jobs were created or how many people are right. employed. It's by no means a uniquely Canadian phenomena, because up until the Trump presidency, the same thing was happening in the United States and indeed in most OECD countries. You see, here's the difference. Back in the heyday of the middle class in the 50s and 60s, Middle-class workers made the very things they consumed. Televisions, cars, toasters. Today, none of those things are made by workers in Canada or the United States. They're made by workers, you know, on the other side of the world making a tenth of their wage. And in the process, we've hollowed out those jobs that used to be the backbone of the middle class, both in Canada and, you know, throughout most of what's known as the OECD. You talk about the politicians, and and I want to come back to Trump in just a moment, but the politicians used to hear the concerns of these people and respond to them instead of just paying lip service, which is what we're getting now. We're talking a lot about the middle class, and every policy is designed to help the middle class, but it's not. No, that's right. But of course, helping the middle class is motherhood. Um, The the Harper government committed itself to that. The Trudeau government committed itself to that. But it doesn't help the middle class when you sign trade agreements that allow companies to close manufacturing plants in Canada and move them to Mexico or China and then make what they used to make in Canada, send it back to Canada duty free. That doesn't help the middle class. That that decimates the middle class. And that's what every administration, whether it's been liberal or conservative, at least in recent uh, decades, Mm. has been committed to, not only in Canada, but elsewhere. I mean, it's one of the ironies that Trudeau, the Liberal Party, is one of the biggest, staunchest supporters of globalism. You'll remember John Turner back in the 1980s. It wasn't the Liberal Party was, you know, they're on the Ross Perot side of the debate. Absolutely. Free trade would be the the end of us. Yeah. Right. So that that is the and you've said until recently in your and, and that's absolutely true. But the irony, as the phrase you used here, is that Donald Trump 
and Bernie Sanders are also on the same side. On <laughs> trade, they are. And I don't think either of them or their supporters would be too willing to recognize that. <laughs> but when you get right down to it, Pamela, had the conservative, the Democratic Party not conspired to keep Sanders off the ticket in 2016, and had he gone on to beat Trump, guess what? That trade war with China, it's still beyond. And yeah, guess what? Exactly. NAFTA, it would be renegotiated because they both thought that those trade agreements were screwing American workers. And they were right. You know, the irony here is with Sanders, I mean, that made perfect sense. But the irony here is that a guy who probably never spent an hour in his entire life working in a factory has championed the cause of those like no other president in the post-war period that, and basically turned the Republican party into a party of the American working class. Now that's, you know, something no. that most people didn't see happening. No, it, it, it is. It, it's a wonderful irony in a way. So where, I mean, this is the point. This was Trump's whole appeal, which is I am going to get your jobs back in steel, in autos, in coal. Um, he made some attempt, but can can that really be the future? How do you do? How do you do? Okay. Yeah. Good question to ask. Yeah. You know, at, in, t in the last year of his presidency, President Obama told American workers those manufacturing jobs that had been declining for decades were never coming back. Okay. The next year, Trump came in power and slapped on these huge tariffs, hundreds of billions of dollars of tariffs, okay? And every economist in the U.S. condemned them, said it won't create any jobs, just be higher prices. Well, between that time and COVID-19, 500,000 manufacturing jobs were created in the United yeah. States. And guess what? When all of a sudden companies couldn't move their plant to Mexico or China because they were fearful that Trump would slap them with a tariff, something that didn't happen for decades. Workers in the United States got a real wage increase. Average hourly earnings was growing the fastest in over a decade, and for the first time, faster than inflation. And all the inflationary fallout from these tariffs that we were warned about never happened. You know why? Because the suppliers in Mexico or China had to eat it. In other words, exactly. had, to, had to take it out of their margin, what they were paying in the tariffs. So, you know what? In my way of thinking, he delivered. And, you know, other, other countries could do that, too. You know, it wasn't yeah. just unique to the United States. Well, it does raise that question about and, and I was going to, you know, just put it out there and just say the word China and let you talk because he is the first guy to take it on. We are not in this country and it's going to exacerbate this problem of, of the declining middle class and no jobs in these sectors that actually make stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we got to realize that the massive increase in the middle class in China, the counterpart of that is the massive decline of the middle class in the UK, Germany, Canada. They're not unrelated events. Now, you know, it is interesting that Trump did take on China. Not everybody was a fan. Like Apple, they're not a fan. You know, of course think, not. Where do you we'll think come Apple to Big Tech this, in a minute. <laughs> where do you think this Mac Pro computer that I'm yes. using was made in Cupitano, California, where the minimum yeah. wage is 15 bucks? Yeah, no. no. 
It's made from some sweatshop supplier in China that's paying $1.50 an hour. So they don't want to see huge tariffs on, on their iPhones or their computers. And you got to realize how in the globalist world, how big tech and China are very interwoven because there's no industry more than the electronics industry that's predicated on global supply chains. And they don't come from high-wage countries. But, you, you know, you're right. He took on China and I think he moved the needle. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be much more difficult for Biden to just reverse everything and cut all of those tariffs, because I think most Americans now have a different view about the World Trade Organization and trade with China than they did four years ago. And I think the numbers are moving here, too. I mean, when when the debate started over Huawei and 5G and whether we should let them into our defense sector and every other part of our government, I think most people went, what are you talking about? But now the numbers are up there, uh, and, 70% plus. And, you know, I'm not sure if Canadians realize, but, you know, why, why aren't we buying it from Nortel? Right. Oh, because Nortel's intellectual <laughs> property was stolen by Huawei and a huge factor in going bankruptcy. So, you know, I don't, uh, I mean, I think Aaron O'Toole is absolutely right in demanding an immediate response from the government. We've got to ban Huawei from 5G. If they want to sell uh, cell phones, fine. Yeah. But, uh, you know, 5G technology. But I'm just saying, if not for Huawei, there'd be a Canadian company called Nortel, who could have supplied us with our 5G technology. And lots of people would have been working in Silicon Valley that's, North, which is right. what they tried to call Ottawa. That's right. You know, <laughs> and if Sweden and Finland can have telecom, global telecom giants, why can't Canada would be a question I'd be asking if I was the government. Absolutely true. I, I know this is kind of off topic, but I'd love to hear your views on it. Uh, I come from Saskatchewan, um, canola producers have paid a huge price because of our discussions with China. Of course, the two Michaels, um, the USMCA, you know, all of these factors have come into play. You say ban Huawei further than that. Should we go further than that? I'd go further than that. I mean, I would, I would trade Miss Meng for the yeah. two Canadians in a heartbeat. And if they don't want to send their 100,000 students to Canadian universities, and of course the reason Canadian universities are so eager to have them is because they pay three to four times tuition, then maybe yeah. we should have more Canadian kids at Canadian universities. Like I went to University of Toronto in the 1970s. About 70% of the population in the University of Toronto came from the GTA. Maybe, yeah. you know, we got to go back to that model, okay? Because all of those things are going to be tied. And yes, China's going to use its economic muscle to try to coerce things. They did it with American soybean uh, farmers. They'll do it with Canadian canola farmers. I mean, what else is new? But, you know, I think the lesson here is we don't want to be dependent on those kind of markets, okay? Because, you know, those are the kind of markets where an edict from the government closes them. When Donald Trump told people not to buy, uh, you know, not to buy motorcycles. Uh, <laughs> what right. happened? CNN was promoting them, right? Yeah, no, no, exactly. China. You know, when, uh, when President Xi says, we're not buying Canadian canola, guess what? Nobody's yeah, they don't buying buy it. Canadian canola. No, the price is a little higher. 
You, you, yeah. you actually uh, often lose your life in those. Okay, so here we are in this situation with China. I think your recent stat in the book was 324 billionaires in China. The yeah. only country with more uh, is the U.S. These guys, as we've been discussing, are human rights abusers and kidnappers and unfair traders <laughs> and everything else. But they are the people increasingly, they hold U.S. debt. They're the people with economic clout. Not That's the Chinese right. people, the government, the Chinese right. government. And one of yeah. the ironies here is uh, there's a thing called a Gini coefficient. It's a measure of income distribution. Okay. The country that has the highest Gini coefficient by a country mile is China. That's right. not exactly an attribute you'd be proud of when you claim to be a communist country. Okay. Now, <laughs> the one difference is that while income distribution has become more and more skewed, everybody has gone up, okay? Like you've had yeah. hundreds of millions of people who used to be peasant laborers who are now middle class, okay? In Canada and the United States, income distribution has also become very skewed, but most people haven't risen at the same time. Most people have fallen behind. Like 80% yeah. of Canadian households yeah. haven't had a real income gain in 20 years. That hasn't happened in China. So, you know, so the 385 billionaires in China are a lot more popular with the other folk then billionaires in Canada and the U.S. are popular with the rest of their population because the rest of their population has gotten poorer, not richer, as in the case of China and India. And I mean, it's really pretty simple. Your proposition is if you're not making the stuff you buy, you can't get richer. That's right. And, <laughs> and you know, so we have like close before COVID-19, we were pretty close to full employment and not just mm -hmm. here in the U.S., in the U.K. Here's the difference. Like in the past, getting a job was a route out of poverty. Today, getting a job like for Uber or Lyft is a route into poverty. And the people getting into that route are some of the most educated cohorts in the whole post-war period. But all that education has given them is a job in the so-called gig economy where they're paid below minimum wage and they've got record student loans. So that's where <laughs> that's left them. And, and a couple of things off that. I mean, low unemployment usually means higher wages because it means workers are, are scarce. So people have to pay more for them. But that's not happening. Why haven't there been a real wage increase since 1975? That's a hell of yeah. a long time to go without it. And as you point out, we've had full employment. And here's the difference. It's kind of hard to go on strike yeah. when you don't belong to a union. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Like in the 1950s, in the heyday of the middle class or the 60s, one out of every three U.S. private sector worker belonged to a union. Mm -hmm. Today, it's one out of 20. And that's not unique. That's happened throughout the OECD. So, and the few unions that exist, if you go on strike, you're playing Russian roulette because typically what happens is a fleet of trucks come to the plant at midnight, haul away all the machinery they can on some giant repo operation to a new plant being opened in Mexico. And your old plant has just been sold to become some new high-rise condo development. So that's why the Phillips curve, which is the relationship between wage increases and the unemployment rate, doesn't work anymore. And it doesn't work anymore because if you go on strike, guess what? You're just going to be replaced by some global supply chain that will access labor at one-tenth the cost. That's why there hasn't been a real wage increase since 1975.
You've got this great phrase in the book, which it's like some giant auction where jobs just go to the the bidder that offers the lowest wage. That's what globalization has meant. Okay, so if you're talking to, you know, the Business Council of Canada, they'll just say it's the imperatives of global competition. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're talking to the expendables, it's a race Mm -hmm. to the bottom. It's the exact same thing because the imperatives of global competition in a world of free trade is go to the cheapest labor market you can possibly go to. And that's what you do. Let me ask you a question. This just kind of off the top of my head here, but the difference, the discussion about globalization, which we're talking about and going to the the lowest bidder, if you put it that way, or the lowest wage bidder and the globalists, the people, as you say, like, well, whether it's Fareed Zakaria or Justin Trudeau or what, right. we're talking about this borderless world. Right. Um, it's part of the same thing, but the consequences are very different because if you are a globalist and you say tear down the borders and everybody should come in from every country etc there's starting to be a political reaction to that a little faster than there has been globalization yeah okay yeah i mean okay so there was a poll 2018 uh something like 40 million people identified Canada as their preferred and Australia was number three at 35. And of course the U S despite Trump was still, you know, yes, of course, everybody still wants a a green card. Okay. So why don't you just let everybody in? So that's like a doubling of the population. What impact will that have on the wages of the local labor force? Okay. Historically, it's always had a negative impact. Mm -hmm. If you've ever saw that Scorsese movie, Gangs of New York, which (laughs) dealt with waves of white Christian migrants coming to the United States and not exactly being welcomed by open arms. And there was a good reason for that. Okay, so, you know, and ironically, in the U.S., the ones who have been hurt the most have been black unskilled workers because they're the last hired and they typically have been undercut. So the black male participation rate in the labor force has fallen steadily as my, as immigration levels have been raised. Now, so what would the globalists say to that? Okay. I mean, you know, who are the people who really support the biggest supporters of immigration? They're usually like the business organizations. They're usually like dudes like the Koch brothers, just like Andrew Carnegie back in the dare of the robber barons called them a fountain of gold. Well, they were a fountain of gold. If you're looking for a steady stream of labor now, you know, Canadian economists will tell you that our birth rate isn't enough to replace the labor force so we can't grow. But why do we care about growth? I mean, GDP has done real fine. It's right. 80% of Canadian households who haven't gone haven't. anywhere. So why do we care about bringing in migrant labor to grow GDP when only the top 5% of the Canadian population get any benefits from GDP? It's a question that you might want to ask, Okay. But, of course, to even raise that question runs the risk of you being, of course, a racist xenophobic. Not unlike the business organizations, which are doing this because of their deep-seated humanitarian concern to help people (laughs) in other countries. So, you know, we need to have a discussion of this. Like, does Canada really need to allow a million migrants in in the next three years? And if the answer is GDP growth, okay, why do I give a shit? 
Okay. If I'm an ordinary Canadian, because there's been a total disconnect between my income and GDP growth, just like there's been a total disconnect between full employment and wage increases. And and you're talking about not just the one percent benefiting from this GDP growth as opposed to the workers. You're talking about the point one percent. Yeah, what we're talking about, and even you know, there are different concentric circles. Right. But but here's the difference, you know, like doctors, dentists, they control. Um, we can allow a million migrants in. It's in Ontario. It's the Royal College of Physicians and the Royal College right. of Dentists that control it. It's not dentists and doctors that are going to be displaced. But there's no Royal College of Unskilled Labor to protect the interests, you know, right. of people who work like at Unifor or other places. Okay, that's who's going. That's who historically has borne the brunt of this, and that's you know who's doing it today. And you know. They get a political expression. I mean, why did Boris Johnson win the biggest conservative majority since Margaret Thatcher? Because he swept northern industrial seats that were labor, but wanted to say goodbye to posted workers and the Polish plumber. Okay. Yeah, and, and you know? open open borders. Right. Absolutely. And just like a, a lot of Latinos live in right. Mexico, don't think it's a great idea just to have open borders on the Rio Grande. In fact, Donald Trump got more non-white votes than any Republican presidential candidate since 1960. So, yeah, you know, and in all the exit polls, that's exactly what the Hispanic vote said, which is we're in favor of immigration if it's legal. Yeah, but controlled immigration. Okay. so, yeah, back here on the, you know, on the the middle class not uh, succeeding just because the. the GDP is going up and income, you know, the, the national income is going up. So you've got the middle class, you've got people who used to work at a car plant or all of those things, haven't seen any real wage increases for 20 years. But I work with and have in my family a lot of millennials. And I've got to say, you look at them and say, you don't have a hope in hell of ever owning a house, never mind two, and having a cottage in the country or whatever. This is going to have profound effects if they don't have that sense of growth um, moving forward, going up the scale in their mindset. Absolutely, Pamela. And one thing that we've got to talk about is the middle class isn't just smaller, it's older. Okay. 70% of people of our generation, baby boomers, were middle Mm. class. And once you got in, that was basically a lifetime gig. For millennials, it's less than 60%. For generation X and Z, less than 50%. So that every cohort, whereas in the past, in the 50s and 60s and even 70s, each cohort made more than their parents that's now started to reverse. So, and, you know, some of them are the most educated ever because parents like myself thought that, you know, the more education I can give my kids, the better they'll do. But we're finding that in terms of getting in the middle class, the millennials are way behind us and subsequent generations are even further behind the millennials. So so what does that mean? The the gig economy, you know? Right. Like so what does that mean? What if, if you have a generation growing up saying the best I can hope for is to be an Uber driver, uh, Uber yeah. driver, even though I have four university degrees, uh, what's going to happen? I'll tell you what, they start to lose belief 
in their institutions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like the, like our acceptance of the principles of liberal democracy is intertwined with the growth and success of the middle class in the post-war period. Okay. And if we look back a century ago, when people start falling behind, they start listening to dark voices. Yeah. Okay? That can come, that can bat from either side of the plate. By the exactly. Way. Okay? Yeah. No, I was having a discussion the other day with, with people who run business schools about how to react in business schools to the new world. And, and our first speaker started out the conversation by saying capitalism has run its course, like it's over. Yeah, I mean, this is not globalization's first rodeo. The first one was 1850 to 1914, and it did not end well, okay? And the subsequent decades were dark periods, okay? Um, You know, at one point, democracies were the exception in Western Europe in the 1930s and the 1920s than, than the rule. And the same thing is happening now. Like, if you look at these young people, they don't have the same belief in the principles of liberal democracy that the baby boomers did. But, you know, they're not enjoying the same economic success. So in in Europe. You've got a lot of right-wing parties, and a lot of them are xenophobic, but there's a context for their xenophobia. Like, you know what? Like, Nazi Germany just didn't happen, you know? I mean, it was the crippling war reparations that allowed Hitler to come to power, okay? The Russian Revolution just didn't happen, okay? Mm -hmm. The collapse of the Russian, you know, monarchy. So there's a context. So when, when people get left this far behind, strange things happen. Brexit, okay? Things that aren't supposed to happen, happen. Donald Trump, all of a sudden, he wins the Republican presidency and then goes on to beat Hillary Clinton, okay? Yeah, I don't know why anybody was surprised. Yeah, Yeah. Bernie Sanders out of nowhere, an independent from the socialists, gets 43% of the vote at the 2016 convention with the super PACs doing everything they can to undermine them. I'm just saying- People start to look for different options. And I think, you know, you know, the 70, you know, the 70 million people who voted for Donald Trump, the expendables, they ain't going away. Yeah. No, <laughs> that's find the a point. Way of expressing themselves. Right. Whoever they aren't going away. It's because if you mistake politics for the uh, the real politic, right? The the actual economic circumstances. It's the same. It's the same. And if anything, if Biden backtracks on Trump, uh, like on trade policy yeah. and starts kowtowing to China, then, you know, there's even going to be more expendables to, to express themselves. Now, a few minutes ago, you were, used the phrase robber barons, which, of course, I love. I love that phrase. So let's look at the robber barons of today. Here's another stat from your book. Six only 16 countries in the world have a larger GDP than Amazon's market cap, or Apple. Like people should think of or apples, or you know, this is stunning. And by the way, these these companies that make global incomes are free to report those global incomes wherever they can. And right, in the Jersey can, Islands. Just, just, yeah. just tends to, to have the lowest corporate tax rates right. in the world. So these, these, these companies don't pay effectively tax or pay a fraction of what the statutory U.S. rate does, while the middle class gets taxed to death, okay? And these so-called progressive companies, the robber barons of today, the Jeff Bezos of today, yeah. they make Rockefeller and Carnegie 
and melon chump change, even in real adjusted dollars. And while they, you know, give lip service to all the liberal causes, you know, like anti-racism, sexual equality, um, global warming, what they really care about is not to be regulated. Okay. And they're very good at avoiding regulation. And so they pick politicians. A bit of avoided (laughs) regulation uh, from the Sherman Antitrust Act, the way these guys do. He could only dream of this kind of regulatory environment. Yeah. No, it's, uh, and and the monopolistic position they have, I mean, Google, 92% of the search engine market. That's as much as Standard Oil had before they were broken up by the Sherman Antitrust Act. Why isn't Google being broken up? Why isn't Amazon being broken up? Because they fund political campaigns of people who will not do that to them. That's right. And they were huge funders <laughs> of the Biden campaign. So exactly. I wouldn't count on them doing anything about that. I think half but the that, people are been... the expendables are going away. Yeah. <laughs> like they're no, still that's there the and point. they're still getting screwed. So. Yeah, th- that is the point that they're still there and their circumstance hasn't changed. So what do we do about uh, big tech? We're, we're looking at, I mean, in all the things you've said are true, including the fact that 90% of Silicon Valley workers are low-wage workers. Workers, They are the expendables, too. Exactly. I mean, first of all, none of this Uber, Lyft, independent contractor. You're a worker, okay? And you should be eligible. You're subject to minimum wage requirements. So, you know, none of this circumventing minimum wage because you're an independent contractor. But, you know, we got to make sure, Christia Freeland's got to make sure, because she's the finance minister, and she sure talks the talk about plutocrats, but let's see if Mm -hmm. she walks the walk. We got to make sure that the 1% are paying taxes in this country. And we got to make sure that companies like Amazon or Google declare the earnings that they make in Canada and not declare them in Guernsey or Belize or Panama. They got to declare them in Canada and they got to pay corporate income tax like all other Canadian corporations have to. That'd be a good place to start. Yeah, there are so many places to start. But when I hear politicians, whether it's Justin Trudeau or whether it's Joe Biden, talk about the Great Reset, it's time for a reset. In the post-pandemic world, we need to reimagine our economy and reimagine our... I get scared. Well, okay, the the Great Reset is let's use COVID-19 as a cover to push through everything that was on our agenda and Mm. say that it's now absolutely essential. But what was on their agenda ain't going to help the expendables, okay? What was on their agenda is, hey, let's have an inheritance tax. We're the only G7 country that doesn't, okay? Okay, well, that's not on the agenda, okay? Or let's tax wealth. Like, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Lutke, the guy who runs Shopify, Mm. he's estimated to be worth $8 billion. If he were to die... At his estate in billionaire-friendly Donald Trump's America would have to pay 40% or $3.2 billion in estate taxes. That would be the equivalent of what 125,000 Canadian households pay every year in tax. But in Canada, the Lutke estate wouldn't pay anything because there is no inheritance tax. So, you know, <laughs> hey, Christia Freeland, <laughs> plutocrats, remember? What's your next book, Hypocrite? 
because it's time to actually do something about the things that you claim to represent. And the whole notion that we have a progressive tax system only works for wage income. You think Thomas Look is $8 billion because he got paid $8 billion in wages from Shopify? <laughs> okay. Hey, it's, it's capital gains and dynastic wealth that's inherited tax-free. Right. That's what the 1% is. And that's where we don't have a progressive tax system. We have a very regressive tax system. So now you say that the reset means doing stuff they want to do anyway, but might not have, have the political to do it. Yeah, yeah, and they've got a pretext to do it. So it's going to come. I mean, government introducing legislation on you know carbon neutrality by 2050 and this right. and that. Um, all these green policies, they don't generally help the expendables either because they They shut down things like like the oil sector. Right, like giving subsidies to people to buy $100,000 Teslas. That's really helpful to the expendables, isn't it? Not so much. Yeah. So, but the issue, the issue going forward is we're still in deficit creation mode. But there will be a time of reckoning when these deficits that are of World War II size as a percentage of the economy have to get paid down. Now, when it comes to trade policy, the middle class are expendable. But when it comes to paying down deficits through tax increases, rest assured, the middle class will be uppermost in the government's mind. Not the checkbook. Yeah, not the the Lutkeys and uh, the 1%. Okay, they they won't be part of this equation, just like it wasn't Wall Street who paid for the taxes to fund the bailout of Wall Street in 2008-09. So what are we going to do about that? Because uh, there's too many people in Ottawa talking about the, you know, the the magic monetary fund, as I call it, right? we We just keep spending because it doesn't matter. We need some real choices. If I dare propose, we need populists here. Like, I'd like to see a Bernie Sanders type dude run the NDP, like in the old (laughs) days, you know, David Lewis, Ed Broadbent, Tommy Douglas. And I'd like to see a, you know, I'd like to see a Donald Trump dude run the conservatives, okay? Uh, And, you know, Aaron O'Toole certainly taken a page out of Boris Johnson's playbook, reaching out to labor in a way that I can't remember, okay? Absolutely true. And when was the last time I heard Stephen Harper say, hey, we need more unions in this country? Okay, so, you know, (laughs) you know, so maybe things are changing. But what would change the nature of the debate here is to have a real debate. Okay, is to have people who are actually articulating different visions. And as I pointed out, Pamela, the populist cause can hit from either side of the plate. I mean, it can no, it actually can. Bernie Sanders, as it could be yeah. Donald Trump. So it could be either from the NDP or the conservatives, or ideally from both. The uh, when you talk about the expendables, it just reminds me, of course, of of Hillary Clinton and and the deplorables, right? <laughs> like that. This this stuff is very real, and it's just filtering. It's true that in this country we pretend we don't have those profound divisions, but That's we do. Right. They're just under That's the right. surface. That's right. Okay, and 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 this is twice that the Democrats have gone and got a globalist, you know, establishment person. Mm-hmm. Don't forget Joe Biden was, you know, the vice president and Obama was one of the biggest globalists of any Absolutely. of them. Absolutely. So these are two establishment candidates that both fail to deliver 
the blue wave that the New York Times and CNN <laughs> so confidently predicted with their plethora of unbiased experts, okay? So this is two times, maybe it says something. You know, maybe the Democrats don't represent the people who they claim they represent. Maybe, ironically, those people have gone over to the Republican Party. And I'm sure that doesn't sit well with the country club in Scottsdale, Arizona, but... <laughs> They don't run the party anymore. Donald Trump runs the party. Can we afford the kind of spending we are engaged no, of in? Of course we can't. Well, of course we can't, Pamela. And, you know, the reverse of this is a Paul Martin, okay? Somebody yeah. who's going to come in and slash it, okay? And it's the question then becomes, on whose shoulders is deficit reduction hoisted? Okay, I'm betting it won't be on the 1% because to get them involved doesn't mean raising the top marginal tax rate because that's not where they get their money from. To them, inheritance tax, wealth tax, full inclusion of capital gains, that's how you get them to shoulder the load as opposed to increasing the marginal tax rate on the corporate lawyer or the radiologist. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but that's right. not getting at the 1%. But the argument that the interest rates are so low that if there's a time to be in debt, it's now. Um, yeah. Because the interest rates are right. artificially down. Right. I remember, and you remember, when there was a guy called John Crow. Mm-hmm. And he was raising interest rates. And basically, public debt charges were canceling all the program spending cuts and tax increases that Martin was doing. Guess what happened to John Crow? Yeah. If I was the current central governor, don't piss her off. <laughs> because she's going to be in the same position that Paul Martin was in. Maybe not in this budget, but yeah. two years from now, we're in deficit reduction mode. And she doesn't want to see debt servicing charges all of a sudden eating up more and more of tax revenue. And if someone puts her in that position, yeah. maybe there'll be a change, just yeah. like it was back then. You remember. Back then. Back I then. do remember all of that discussion. You know, I'm, I'm, Eight, two things. I really missed talking to you because we used to do it <laughs> well, fairly regularly. I know. And this is great. This is wonderful. And, and secondly, I understand why you can't possibly work at a bank, a bank. <laughs> when that's, you that's say true, all this that's stuff. Very apparent. <laughs> By the way, I'm not representing the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. No, no, no. I just, for statements. those who know, he did used to be the chief economist <laughs> and strategist at CIPC. Um, and there was, there came a parting of ways when he started writing books and saying right. what he really meant. Anyway, right. it's wonderful. I, as I said at the beginning, I do think the, the one book people should, it's a good history book, you know? I went it into is. the bookstore the other day looking for this because I'm buying it as a couple of Christmas presents. Oh, well, thank and, you very much. <laughs> and, they, and they said it's in the history section. I said, what are you talking about? But the it did make section. some sense. Okay. The history section. Okay. But, you know, it, it was also on a big table, so don't worry. But it did, it does have that. It explains everything. I, I was going to I, I do... want people to get a sense that this isn't globalization's first rodeo like right, we've right. been through this before yeah and it didn't end well and yeah. there was a reason for it and not ending well. yeah and if and if we don't understand where we've been and how we got there we can't understand where we're going, where we're going. exactly yeah. 
Exactly. The pandemic changes everything, though, doesn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, it does. I mean, it changed everything because all of a sudden it wasn't just like all of a sudden everything that we were taught about globalization yeah. turned out to be bullshit. Like yeah. when you absolutely needed an N95 mask or a respirator. And even though there was a, co- a company in Montreal having them made in Shanghai, just like 3M had them made in Shanghai, right. you couldn't get any of those masks or respirators from that plant because it was commandeered by some official from the Chinese government. And they were telling the plant where to ship and where not to ship. So if you wanted a respirator and an N95 mask, only one mm-hmm. way, make them, make them here. And I think we also learned that all our pharmaceuticals are made are, there, are made in China. All so generic drugs. Yeah. So I mean, the argument's going to be because you know you can make that respirator in ninety-five mask a whole lot cheaper in Shanghai than you yep. can in Toronto. But what good is that? And I see got someone in an ICU ward who needs yep. one and doesn't have one. Okay, you don't worry about Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage based on low wages. You just want to <laughs> have a reliable source of domestic supply, and that goes with the vaccine, and that goes with a whole swath of generic drugs that we're totally dependent on suppliers in China. You've given us the one upside of the pandemic. It's made us smarter. Yeah. And here's, here's another irony. In the wake of all past pandemics, and this goes back to the bubonic plague, wages rose. Now, wages rose just because of the physical decimation of the labor force in the peasantry, right? There was right. less people work in the field. The same might happen this time, not hopefully because of the the physical decimation. But if it brings back supply chains, if all of a sudden we're making that mask in Montreal instead of in Shanghai, that's good news for the expendables. Because for the first time, you know, they're not being auctioned off. Their job isn't being auctioned off to the lowest bidder because they can never win in that auction. It changes the nature of the game. And now it's not just Donald Trump. It's, hey, you know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or a liberal or a conservative, we better make our own masks. Jeff Rubin, The Expendables, How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization. Thank you for writing the book. Thanks for being with us. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. And we should talk more often than once. We will. <laughs> we, we will for sure. Okay. Take care now. Take care, Pamela. Bye. Bye.